For our time in God's Word this morning together, I want us to consider four storms in the Scriptures, four different storms. This will be a short message, but I hope a helpful one to you. The first storm that I want us to look at is Elijah's rainstorm. Elijah's rainstorm is reported for us in the New Testament by way of a commentary in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. So the first of the four storms that we want to look at briefly this morning after our storm is Elijah's rainstorm, to see what God would have us to learn about himself and ourselves in this particular storm. And the scriptures in James 5, 16 to 18, say this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, when believers in Christ, persons who have been made righteous through the God's work of grace and the finished work of the cross, when believers like us, righteous in position and in our walk, when we pray, it accomplishes much. And God is the one who accomplishes what is accomplished in prayer. Of course, we have, as a nation, been praying much, and so we should, and we needed to, and we continue to still need to pray much in the days that are ahead. And we know that God has heard us. God has answered us. God will hear us as we pray, and God will answer us. And so we should keep right in our practice of prayer. Someone has said, little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Much prayer, much power. Elijah's rainstorm in history whispers to me and to you as well, pray, pray. The second storm I want to look at with you, I'm calling the disciples' storm. It was a storm that Jesus' first followers were in with Jesus. This second storm I'm calling the disciples' storm, and I read about it with you in Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he, that is the Lord Jesus, has gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
If Elijah's rainstorm whispered to us, pray, the disciples' storm whispers to us to gaze, to gaze at Jesus, to gaze. Jesus' men at the point of this storm in history, Jesus' closest men had spent plenty of time with him. They had left jobs and livelihoods and families, and they had gone to follow Jesus, and they had lived with him and listened to him and served with him, and they were getting to know him. And yet they needed more faith than they had. They needed more faith in Jesus to coming out of their storm than they had going into their storm. And the way they got from the faith they had coming into the storm until the faith they had out of the storm was by gazing, looking at Jesus. And we are like them. This morning, we need to see more of Jesus. We need to look more closely at him than perhaps we've ever looked at him in our past. And the way we find Jesus and we can look at him and understand him and and benefit from who he is and how he cares for us is to look into the pages of Holy Scripture, the Bible, and to gaze at Christ as he's revealed to us in the Bible to gain a greater understanding of who he is, a bigger understanding of what he's capable of doing, more clear insight into his heart for us and his heart for everyone else. And so on that occasion, those disciples of the Lord Jesus in that boat on the tempestuous Sea of Galilee in a storm that terrified them that they thought they would lose their lives out of their need, they looked at him more closely. Out of respect, they gazed at him more fervently. And what they gained is what we still can gain. When we look more intently and with a greater focus on the Lord Jesus as he's revealed to us in the Bible, we will gain a better light for trust, faith, surrender, worship, calm, peace, Provision, guidance, all the things that we're so desperately in need of at this time. And so if Elijah's rainstorm calls us to pray, and it does, and if the disciples' storm with Jesus calls us to gaze at Jesus, and it does, gaze at him. Open your Bibles this week. Men, open your Bibles with your wives and your children who are still at home. And as a family, gaze at Jesus. You who live on your own, open your Bibles and gaze at Jesus. Maybe you could phone other persons on the phone and tell them what you're gazing at Jesus and seeing of him in the word and and share blessing upon blessing as we all are in God's word this week. There's something I'd like to say too that The disciples' faith on that occasion in the storm, their faith in Jesus was a late faith. They came to faith, but they came to faith rather late in the whole process. And really, when you step back from it, a late faith is a little faith, but an early faith is a big faith. So none of us knows what today holds for our loved ones that we're still praying for. 
None of us knows what today holds, but we know who holds today. And for us to more clearly understand the Lord Jesus, we gaze at him, what we're told of him in his word, and we rest our faith not as a late faith in him, but as an early ahead of the fact faith in him. And so gaze, gaze at Jesus. The hymn writer has it right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The first verse, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And so we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face. That is what the disciples' storm calls us to do today. The third storm that I would like to share with you this morning is Jonah's storm. You remember Jonah, one of the most... uh, unwilling missionaries of all time. He was told by God to leave his comfort zone and to take the good news that the Hebrews knew and the true and living God of the Old Testament scriptures to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the equivalent of ISIS. They were violent, terroristic kind of people, and Jonah was scared to take anything to them. And so you know what happened, I think, in the story that Uh, beginning at Jonah 1, verse 1 through 4, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Wasn't that God had noticed their wickedness, of course, but they had reached a tipping point with God that he must judge it. And so God wanted his Hebrew prophet Jonah to go and to warn the Ninevites of pending judgment. But Jonah was scared, and Jonah was prejudiced, and Jonah really wasn't interested in those Ninevites being getting in on any of God's love or mercy. And so he did what some of us do. He ran away. Text says, verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord And he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. May I interject? When the Lord called Jonah to do God's bidding, he said to Jonah, Arise, go up to Nineveh. But when Jonah disobeyed, he wound up going down to Joppa. He found a ship. The text says he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. And he went down, there it said again, he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he thought. So he thought. Then the story goes on. God sends a tempest on the seas that sea-hardened and experienced sailors were so fearful of their lives and that they 
started casting all of their cargo, the things they were being paid to bring to another place by their ship. They started throwing the cargo off the ship to try to lighten it so it wouldn't capsize and, and sink, and they would drown. And you know what happened in, in verse uh, 12. They're trying to determine why this storm is on them, and Jonah comes out of his slumber trying to hide and run from God and says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. And then skipping to chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, there it is, arise. Doing God's will will always cause you to arise, to go up. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose, there it is, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. That means that on the fortified wall of the city of Nineveh that had a flat top, history tells us that top was wide enough for three chariots to go abreast of each other on the flat top of the wall of the city of Nineveh. And when it says it was a three days walk, it would take you three days to walk around the periphery of the city of Nineveh. It was a huge, huge city that God sent Jonah to bring God's message to. And so... What happened in Jonah's storm was that God sent a wake-up call to his prophet. He jolted his prophet to turn his prophet 180 degrees to the doing of God's will. It could be that for some who have come through Dorian, God has been saying, Turn, turn, turn to go my way, the Lord says, turn. It is God who, of course, used storms in Scripture, and it is God who uses storms in Scripture, and only he can control the storms, and only he can, in his pleasure and in his providence and in his purpose, tailor storms to do what he says, needs to be done. And so I don't know about anybody else. I just know about me. And I know that there are things that God has turned in my heart in these days that needed turning. And maybe it's for some of you the same. When you have experienced the losses and the pain and the question marks and the difficulties that you might be sensing the Spirit of God is saying to you, turn, change, be more like Jesus. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. I know something that in my own life before this storm, that there have been times when there have been very painful things that have come into my life that I didn't understand but later I could, with God's help, see maybe what he was doing in my pain. And I learned that I don't want to waste my pain when God is working with me. 
God has a canvas for my life and a canvas for each of your lives as well. And the Lord, as the master artist, is painting a magnificent masterpiece of each of our lives with his paint on each canvas of each of our lives. And he does not waste one brushstroke. And he paints with happy and bright colors to make this masterpiece of our lives. And sometimes he paints with dark brushstrokes, still part of the masterpiece. And I know that it's unwise for me or anyone to waste the pain sometimes God brings us through to waste it. This is a silly illustration, but if a person requires open-heart surgery because they ate terribly before they had the heart disease, and they go through all the pain of having their rib cage broken open in surgery and the, the uh, heart doctor fixing up the heart with the surgery, and then all the many months of the knitting together of the, the, the breastbone and so forth, it would, be a, it would be a waste if the person who went through all of that ordeal and that pain and the recovery were to go back to eating the way he used to eat. That would be a waste of pain. So it could be. I don't know. I, I'm not saying authoritatively. I don't know, but could be that there would be individuals in the commonwealth that God is saying through Dorian, turn. Turn. Don't waste your pain. Come to Christ for salvation. Walk with Christ as Lord if you're saved. But let us not waste our sorrows. And so if Elijah's rainstorm calls us to pray and the disciples' storm with Jesus calls us to gaze and Jonah's storm calls us to turn, then the fourth and final storm I'd like to share with you from Scripture is Noah's storm, Noah's storm. You'll recall that back in that day on the earth, all of the earth in God's estimation, which is the only estimation that counts, was evil. All the earth in Noah's day was evil, except one family, Noah's family, a family of eight persons. And God, in judgment against a globe full of evil, sent a global flood, instructed Noah to build an ark. People mocked as he built it for many, many, many months. He obeyed God and built the ark, and people mocked, what are you doing, Noah? We, you won't need that. You'll never finish the project, etc." And then God put the family of eight and the animals into the ark, and then God sealed the door. They weren't on the inside pulling with some big old rope to pull the door shut from the inside of the ark. No, God shut the door and sealed it tight, made it watertight, which is a picture of our salvation in Christ. Christ is the ultimate ark for the sinner. And our safety in Christ is predicated and built upon God's grace and power to keep us saved in salvation. And so in this storm that came upon the globe at Noah's time, the whole world was evil except this one family of eight. And because God was holy then, and because God is still holy today, and God always will be holy, he could not wink at the sin on earth 
at Noah's time. He could not grade on the curve to say, well, that's evil, but not as evil as that. And so there became a tipping point in God's righteous holiness, and it was a necessity for him to pour out his wrath on Noah's generation with a global flood. You know, really, God's holiness is greatly compromised if he doesn't pour out wrath against evil. Every ounce and drop of wrath that we deserve, that I deserve, was poured out on the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. I hope you've run to him in simple faith and asked him to be your savior. He is the one who absorbs the wrath that I deserve, that God in his grace and mercy could give me the righteousness that I could never earn or achieve. And so there had to be a global flood at Noah's time for a holy God to judge evil. And there had to be a cruel cross in the New Testament times with an innocent Savior on it. And that the holy God in heaven poured out every bit of his justified wrath against sin onto the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, our sin bearer, our scapegoat. Every ounce of wrath Deserving, deserved by sinners, was poured out upon Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Listen carefully. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We could not become righteous in our own efforts, religious efforts, good deeds, but we could be made righteous by virtue of Jesus Christ becoming sin for us, taking the spankings that our sin meant we should have deserved, dying in our place as our substitute, as our Savior. I trust that's your testimony. It's amazing that in the New Testament Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus was interacting with a Samaritan woman at a well. You'll remember, and in that day, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and certainly not a woman. And Jesus addressed her and asked her to pour, get him a drink and so forth. And it's amazing in the interchange when Jesus was distinguishing between Samaritan worship and the Jewish worship and different places and different ways of worshiping. And in that interchange with that precious woman, Jesus said to her something we need to hear this morning. Jesus said, but an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, watch this, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Can you imagine that? The creator, the sustainer of the universe, the master plan of the plan of redemption, the one who can make sinners that are vile, clean, and righteous, the one who inhabits the heavens, seeks our worship. He doesn't need it. He wants it. He desires it. But he deserves it. And so Noah's storm, whether a person is not yet saved or a Christian 
considers Noah's storm. In both cases, this storm in Holy Scripture says, bow down. Bow down to God. Trust Christ for salvation if you never have done so before, or if you have trusted Jesus to be your Savior, bow down and surrender, glad surrender to his lordship in your life. Bow. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so, so far we've seen that Elijah's rainstorm tells us to pray. The disciple storm with Jesus tells us to gaze. Jonah's storm tells us to turn. And Noah's storm tells us to bow to the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a communicating Heavenly Father. And we thank you that you have given us your Holy Bible to give us interpretation of what goes on in our lives. And Lord, as we have said earlier, we do not know the wise, but we know who, and that's you. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to rest in you. Teach us to serve you by serving others. Heavenly Father, as you know better than any here, many, many of us bowed in your presence are in pain. Tremendous pain. We have deep sorrows and manifold losses. Lord, we thank you that you understand and care, that we can cast all our care upon you, knowing that you care for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you in the dark for what we have come to trust you for when it was daylight. May we run to you. Lord, may we run to you and not from you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.